Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're wrapping up uh, a quick, I think, three, four-week series about the Bible, calling it the text. And uh, if you're new to church world, um, it's no surprise that a church would be talking about the Bible, right? Because that's what we talk about a lot. If you're grown up in church world, it's definitely not shocking that we would talk about the Bible. However, I think it does us good to remember, to remind ourselves, to wrestle through why the Bible is good for us to see as our authority, why it is authoritative, how it functions in our life, all these sorts of things. And so I've been trying to make a case for the last several weeks on you need to read your Bible. You need to get into your Bible and read it. In fact, on the back of the bulletin, the last several weeks, I've put uh, a reading schedule, and I'll continue to do that through 2016. Um, and there are all sorts of resources available for reading your Bible. And nothing replaces reading your Bible. In fact, today, the, the message, the theme is, is about the finality of the Scriptures. The finality, the, 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 just the utmost importance of the Scriptures and how they are meant to function in our lives. And before we get into the text, um, I want to just kind of relate a brief story from my own life. Several years ago, when I was uh, pastoring two churches here in town, um, and yes, that was weird. Um, <laughs> it was challenging, to say the least. I was having a quiet time over at the Presbyterian Church. I was spending Tuesday morning there like what was my habit, and I, I missed those times. I would sit in the sanctuary, and I would pray, and I would uh, listen to uh, music or listen to Scripture. Um, I would read, and I was sitting there quieting myself trying to hear from God stuff. And one particular day, I think I heard from God, and what I heard from him, I think was a, a number. And now I look back, and that was many, many years ago because I haven't been the pastor over there since 2007, and I am questioning the validity of what I heard. Now, I'm not questioning God. I'm questioning whether I heard from God. I'm questioning whether I heard from God or not. And, and there's, a, there's a profound reason why I think this is important for me to share with you, and it's important for us to wrestle through together, because I regularly hear from people in this church, but outside of this church as well, who say, well, God told me. I heard this from God. God has this word for you from me to share with you. And there's something in me that just always, I'm going to be super, super honest right now, cringes. There's something in me that cringes when somebody says, Steve, God told me this. Or God told me to tell you this. You know, my wife has yet to do that to me. But what would be her motivation for doing that to me? What would be my motivation for doing that to you? as your pastor? What would be my motivation for doing that to my children? What would be my motivation for doing that to my spouse? My motivation would be because his word is beyond contestation, right? 
You're not arguing with me. God told me to tell you. <laughs> so there, you got to do what I said. And that, that's, can I just be honest? That's manipulative. It has all sorts of potential to be manipulative. And I just finished this communion meditation telling y'all you're sinners. By the way, <laughs> right back at you, Steve. We're all sinners. And the scriptures tell us that the human heart is deceitful above all things. Man, is it possible that times we think we heard from God, we're being deceived? Is it possible that we're deceiving ourselves? There's, there's a couple of ways to look at this. You could be deceiving yourself. For instance, why would a pastor want to hear a big number about what his church size will be someday? I don't know. Huh. There couldn't be any possible reason other than you just want people to know Jesus. Or I'm prideful. I want to think I, my life's going to matter. I'm going to achieve something because every single book I've ever read by any pastor who got to write a book, it started out with, he started with five people meeting in his backyard. And then in three years, he had 50,000 people, a television ministry, a TV, and five books written. Wow. That's how you become a great pastor. So why would I want to hear from God? I mean, is there any possible deception that could be going on there? Just, this is interactive. Is there any possible deception that could be going on there? Is it possible that Steve, in his own weakness, in his own pride, in his own desire to amount to something, be somebody, heard something that wasn't uttered by God? It made him feel better about himself. There's another possible thing that could happen. I could have been, you could have been deceived by an unseen being besides God. Scriptures make it clear that there are lots of unseen beings beside God. One we call Satan, Lucifer, the devil, Diablo. I mean, all sorts of words for the guy. First Peter says he prowls around like a hungry lion looking for somebody to devour. Not only that, we have these accounts in the Gospels about demons. Not only that, we have accounts of angels. Not only that, we have accounts of other beings, seraphim, cherubim, not only that, we have, I mean, there is on and on and on all of these unseen beings is it possible that they could deceive you? Is it possible that they would want to deceive you? In fact, don't we get insight from the scriptures that, say, that says something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing here because I didn't look the scripture up, but isn't there something in the scripture that says, Satan is like an angel of light? And I would argue he mimics he copycats the voice of God. Now, why do I care about this so much? Well, number one, I'm your pastor, and I care about you. I'm, that may be shocking to some of you, but I do care about you. 
And I want us all to understand how God speaks to us. Because we all want to hear from God, don't we? We all want to experience more of God. We want to know what God wants us to do. How he wants us to live. Dudes. We want to understand those things. And I want to make the case that the way that happens is through the Bible. It's through the Bible. This is God's final, complete words. And because it is final, it is complete, it is never obsolete. That even rhymes. Because it is final and complete, it is never obsolete, it never needs correction, it never needs updating. That's what I want to convince you of today. That's what I want to argue for today. And if you need to hear from God, if you want to hear from God, if you're sure you want to hear God, if you want to make sure it's God you hear, this is the only way to be certain. Because years ago, as I sat in a sanctuary wanting to hear from God, and I heard something that I could not find a Bible verse for, it made me feel better. But now five years down the road, I wonder, did I hear from God? Now, we'll get into a pastoral movement here in a little bit, okay? Because some of you are irritated with me and you're bugged and you're freaking out a little bit. And we're going to deal with that here in a bit. Before that, though, let's go to the Bible. Because it's a very good place to start. Hebrews is where we're going to be today. Not the coffee shop, Hebrews. So what a lot of churches name their coffee shops. <laughs> I think it's cheesy, but it's kind of funny. All right, Hebrews, dude. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're just going to read um, these verses, and then we're going to skip to chapter 4. And the reason we're jumping around, it, it, you'll see in a bit. These are the parts that talk about God's word. And it may not be obvious that it's talking about God's word at first, but that's what I'm here for. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, when were the last days? When it was written. And they're still happening. Okay? Just FYI, that was free for eschatology purposes. Are we in the last days? Yeah, because Hebrews said they were in the last days, and that was 2,000 years ago. So if you have any question, just... Open your Bible. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Don't you love just that throw in there? Oh, and by the way, he created the world through him. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then jump with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 6. 
since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. My argument is simple. That this is God's final words until the day of judgment. That this is God's final, complete, total revelation until the day of judgment. Now, there's a couple ways you get to that through that passage we read. We see that in former times, he spoke to us how? By prophets. And that's referring to the Old Testament. It's referring to the Torah and the prophets and the wisdom books, the historical books. It's speaking of the entire Old Testament. It is saying that God previously at many times in some ways spoke to us. And the Greek behind that phrase, in many times in some ways spoke to us, is this Greek word piecemeal. It was like this piecemeal. He, he would he'd throw you some, some pieces, keep you satiated, keep you understanding, keep you moving forward. But now, that is contrasted with God has revealed himself fully, holy, with a W, holy in his Son, simple way of putting that is if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know how God behaves, if you want to know how he handles himself in the world, you look at Jesus. And then it says he sat down at the right hand. What will I do after I'm done preaching? I'll sit down eventually. And when I sit down, what does that mean? I'm done. I'm finished. Now, you guys all started sitting down, so you guys were done before we got started. But in the ancient mind, to sit down next to the king, to sit down at his right hand, that means the job was done. It's over. And from that, we get this idea that Jesus is the complete final revelation of God, of who God is, of God's will, of God's work in this world. Revelation is the person, Jesus, and the place we experience him, the place we encounter him, the place we find his teachings, his actions, his words, is in the Bible. It's where we find him. Where else can you go to find him? What other book? What other writings? What other items have any connection to who Jesus is and attest to who he is 
It's the scriptures. It's the place you go and you find Jesus. And if Jesus is the the revelation of who God is, where do you go to find God? The Bible. It is the final word from God. It is final and complete. It will not become obsolete. It does not need correction or upgrading. Now, some of you, the cynics out there and the searchers, Maybe you've come across some of this new, a, new atheism or you've come across some of these arguments against the scriptures and maybe you've been paying attention to some of our culture wars. You know, there's that phrase, do you want to be on the wrong side of history when it comes to issues in our culture? And it seems that many in our culture would say the Bible is on the wrong side of history. The Bible is out of touch. The Bible is outdated. The Bible is obsolete. The Bible needs to be changed, corrected. And so, Steve, how can you be in front of a a crowd of folks and say, the Bible is the complete final revelation of God. It is not obsolete. And and real quick, I just want to hit a few items that I've heard people throwing out. Polygamy. The Bible teaches polygamy. So therefore, we know polygamy is, is not right. I mean, just we'll look at focus on the family and James Dobson. And, you know, there's all these things about what the family should be, the Christian view of family. But when you look at the Old Testament, you don't see the Christian view of family. So the Bible teaches polygamy. And my response would be, okay, where does the Bible teach polygamy? You see, what the Bible does is it records the lives of polygamists. Just like it records the lives of liars and thieves and deceivers. Jacob. Jacob is one that is trotted out. Look at, he's a patriarch of Israel. He's, his name was the one that was changed to Israel, and he's a polygamist. He had four wives. Now, he's, I would argue he's an accidental polygamist, if you know the story wasn't his intention. It's not what he was shooting for. But he's a polygamist. However, he's also a deceiver and a liar. And the Bible records that. But it doesn't endorse any of those behaviors. At the beginning of Genesis, we read, and a man, and you've heard me say this at, at marriage services, and a man will leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife. 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 That's what the Bible teaches. He will cleave to his wife, not as many as he wants. And if anything, the Bible, in its recording of polygamy, is undermining an ancient practice because everybody who practiced polygamy was miserable. They were. Every, if you don't believe me, read the Bible. I mean, over and over and over and over again. It's dysfunction. It's horrible. It's a mess. And everybody who was in a polygamous relationship, it is just blech, yucky. It leads to problems. And the Bible doesn't teach 
be a polygamist. It teaches subversively. In fact, a Jewish commentator on Genesis said that if anybody reads Genesis and comes away thinking the Bible teaches polygamy, they don't know how to read. They don't know how to understand narrative. All right, well, that's interesting. What about slavery? The Bible clearly talks about slavery. Clearly endorses slavery. Clearly makes rules and regulations around slavery. And if anybody asks me this question, and you could do this too, if anybody ever asked me this question, I'm like, well, what do you have in mind when you say slavery? The vast majority of people will go to the African slave trade here in America that occurred. And not just here, but British colonies around the world. And the interesting thing is you can go to 1 Timothy, 4, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1 or Deuteronomy 24, and both of those passages unconditionally condemn kidnapping and slave selling. Did you know that's what was going on in the African slave trade? People were going to Africa. They were kidnapping people from their native land. They were bringing them someplace else against their will, and they were selling them as slaves. Those activities are expressly prohibited in Scripture. Now, the Bible does talk about slavery. But do you know what kind of slavery it talks about? It has nothing to do with your modern-day notions of what slavery was or currently is. Slavery in the Old Testament was a form of bankruptcy. If you owed someone a debt that you could not pay back, you didn't declare bankruptcy, you became their indentured servant. You worked for them. Now, understand, you were not their property. Your productivity was theirs. They owned that. You know, like how the government garnish wages sometimes? Imagine if it garnished all y'all's wages, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. But even in there, there was all sorts of rules and regulations. Did you know that a slave was supposed to be let go every seven years? The longest you could be a slave to somebody as an indentured servant, whether you had paid the debt back or not, was seven years. So if you still owed a big sum, and it was seven years, time's up, have a nice day. I got all I could out of you. Did you know that in um, Deuteronomy, uh, I can't find it here, Deuteronomy 23, that if a slave ran away and they came to you, you were not supposed to return them to their owner? There's no other ancient law code that teaches this. You see, the Bible, the Old Testament, taught that you should assume that if a slave is fleeing from the person they owe, they must be being mistreated. And you're not supposed to return them. Exodus 20, verse 27, says that if you hit a man slave, a man servant, and knock his tooth out, he goes free. In other words, if you beat your slaves... That's not okay. It was not allowed in the scriptures. So the type of slavery that the Bible talks about is nothing like what has 
been practiced ever in this country. Okay, good move. That was interesting. Well, what about all those rules in the Old Testament that none of you Christians all pay attention to? Last Sunday, Steve, I saw you were eating shrimp. And the Bible says God hates shrimp. They're an abomination to God. But they sure taste good. Or I've also heard, Steve, that you like bacon because I saw that you bacon-wrapped the shrimp. And by the way, you need to try that. That is fantastic. And God said you shouldn't eat pigs. Are you just arbitrarily choosing, picking and choosing what you want to follow? And right after that, it says homosexuality is an abomination to God. Right after it says shrimp are an abomination to God. So I know that you have different feelings about that one versus shrimp. So where, how do you I mean you're just arbitrarily ignoring stuff in the scriptures? That's why I brought you to Hebrews. Because Hebrews is the answer to the fact, to, to the reality that Christians live, that we, yes, we ignore, we do not, no longer follow a lot of the Old Testament laws, but there is a reason. You know what the reason is? The Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us which parts of the Old Testament to uphold, which are still in effect today, I would suggest to you the Ten Commandments. A Christian does not ignore the Ten Commandments. But there are other commandments in the Old Testament that have to do with what to eat and how to wear and how to wash things, how to wash ourselves, whether we can hang out with dead people or not, whether we can go to a funeral or not, whether we can handle dead carcasses or not, that those have been overturned. They've been changed. Now, they're important rules. They are important things. They demonstrate to us that we can't just nonchalantly, however we want, enter into God's presence. You can't just walk up to God and go, yo, what's up, man? Dude. That you only approach God in the manner in which he prescribes for you to approach him. And in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, you get all these rules about if you've been around a dead person, you're ceremonially unclean and you can't come to God until you do these things, and then you are right, made right for sacred space. If you unintentionally sin in some way, you have to offer these sacrifices, and then you are fit for sacred space. You're fit to come into God's presence. But what happened was you were always going to sin. There's always going to be something. Somebody was going to just kill over in your presence. You would have to bury your family. You need to be present. You would have to be there. You'd have to do other things. The Old Testament laws were fulfilled in Christ. And what Jesus did was he became the new way. That's what we read in Hebrews 1. He became the fulfillment of these things so that we can boldly approach God. Yes, you needed to be atoned for. Yes, you are unclean and you are not worthy of God's presence. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is. And belief in him makes us fit for God's presence. And because of this, we can eat pork. 
bacon is victory food, people. I mean, it's a gift from God. Those poor Jewish people. It's the work of Christ on the cross. It gives us the victory. We don't ignore these things arbitrarily. We ignore them because Christ fulfilled them. We don't actually ignore them. We recognize that we are in need of Christ to make us right for God, to make us right to be in his presence, to make us right for heaven, to make us right for sacred space. That's what those laws function as. You know, there's, of course, there's lots of other places that people can say, well, the, the Bible is obsolete. The Bible is out of date. Of course, there's other places that people will argue, that our culture will argue, but the scriptures themselves tell you that it is finished. That the Bible will not be added to. It is not in need of updating. It is not obsolete. It is the final, complete revelation of God. Now, back to why some of you are a little irritated. And if you forgot, let me remind you. Are you saying, Steve, that God doesn't speak to us? Are you saying that he won't speak to me individually? That he won't just have a word for me? That he just won't impart something into me? That he won't just give me a feeling or a notion or an impulse or an impression that will lead me and guide me and direct me? Are you telling me that God doesn't speak to us except by just his Bible? And I'm your pastor, and I care about you, and I love you, and so I'm going to try to be very pastoral here. But if you think that way, you, you are gravely mistaken. You don't understand what you are saying. That wasn't very pastoral, so let me keep trying. Um, George Whitfield. George Whitfield was um, at the forefront of the Great Awakening here in America. He was a British Anglican preacher, and he came to the States, and it was said that he would wake up at 4 a.m., and he would start preaching at 5. And you, some of you think our church starts too early. <laughs> By the way, we're fine with the time we start. I am not arguing for starting earlier, because none of you want to hear me talking at 5 o'clock. But he would start preaching at 5, and he would preach all day long. It was estimated that he spoke to 10 million people in his life. This is a guy who lived in the mid-1700s, before electricity. He was good friends with Benjamin Franklin, and Benjamin Franklin estimated that without amplification, 30,000 people could hear his voice. Huh, that's cool. George Whitfield crisscrossed America preaching the gospel, and people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of George Whitfield's preaching. But George Whitfield made a huge mistake one time, and he attributed it to God, to God speaking to him. Later on in his life, he reflected on this, and he even admitted, I was wrong, I was mistaken. And what he did was this. In 1743, towards the end of the year, his wife Elizabeth gave birth to his one and only son that he would ever have. 
And he felt so strongly that God was speaking to him that his son would grow up to be an amazing preacher and that he would go around the country and perhaps the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ that George felt compelled to name his son John after John the Baptist. And how interesting that his mother's name was also Elizabeth, just like the Bible. And at his baptism, his son's baptism, he held a big outdoor rally. When he baptized his son, he practiced infant baptism. Maybe that was partly why he couldn't hear from God. But anyways, he practiced infant baptism. He baptized his son. (laughs) That was free for you, Mike. And at the message that ensued, he said, My son, I've heard from God, will grow up and become an amazing preacher for Jesus Christ. He will go around the country, perhaps the world, and proclaim the gospel. Four months later, his infant son experienced a seizure and died. George, what happened? You see, I'm a dad to three kids, and I want them all to do amazing things. I'm a dad to three kids, and I see my kids, and I believe, not just I want, I believe they are capable of doing amazing things. Not only that, I watch them struggle with doing amazing things sometimes because they're young punk kids and they don't understand what's inside of them and they don't understand who they are and who Jesus has made them. And by the way, if you're a parent, you know that struggle because you see in your kid and you're like, come on, I just want to call out the best in you and you're going to be amazing and you're going to do all this cool stuff. You're the best. Because that's just how God made parents. But what if I were to start saying, Sam, God told me to tell you that you're going to be a starting point guard for the Denver Nuggets and you need to play basketball next year for Ray High School. Isn't that a little manipulative? Isn't that a little presumptuous? And by the way, that's just dad trying to get his kid to, you know, Beanie's done this about wrestling practically. Right? God told me to tell you You see, George wanted so much the best for his kid. George was so passionate about the gospel being given to people that he would wake up at four. He'd start preaching at five. He wouldn't stop till dark. He preached 18,000 sermons to 10 million people. He was so impassioned that this would happen that he wanted it to continue in his son. Can you blame him? Later on in his life, he reflected on this. And he said, it was my pride. It was my heart's desires. And I took those impulses and that pride and I put that together and I equated it with God's voice speaking to me. Because it felt so deep. It felt so compelling. It felt so strong. Besides, it's something God wants too, isn't it? Here's the lesson here. You can never be sure if you're hearing from God unless you read it in the one place you're sure he spoke. 
And the one place you're sure he spoke is the Bible. If you are a mature Christian, you will recognize this. You can never be certain. The only way you could ever be certain is with hindsight. That's the only way you'd ever know that it wasn't you're being deceived by yourself, by your pride, by your selfish ambition, or whether it was another entity deceiving you, or whether it was God speaking to you. In fact, did you know that there's all sorts of prohibitions in the Old Testament, and these are still in effect, by the way, that Christians shouldn't practice witchcraft, that Christians shouldn't try to get in contact with the dead, that Christians shouldn't practice divination, Do you know why these are prohibited for Christians? Not because they don't work. Now wrap that around your head for a moment. Not because they don't work, but because they do work. They do get you in touch with entities in the unseen realm. The reason they're prohibited for Christians is because you're supposed to only be in touch with one being in the unseen realm, who is the triune God, who has revealed himself in the scriptures. And his name is Yahweh. His son is Jesus Christ. And their best friend, buddy, is the Holy Spirit. And those are the only unseen realm beings that you are to be in touch with unless God sends you an angel. How do I know that's the case? Because that happened in the Bible. What do I also know is true? It didn't happen very often. The Bible records several thousand years of history. And angels did not appear very often. So if you are kicking back, if you're frustrated, if you're like, oh, but I want to hear God, check your heart. What motivates you? Sometimes we want to hear from God because we want to be perceived as more mature than other Christians. And we want to be able to say, well, when I was praying, God revealed to me. You know, another way to be perceived as being really mature is by reading your Bible and God speaking to you through the scriptures. When I was reading my Bible, I found that I'm a jerk to my wife, and I need to fix that. When I was reading my Bible, I found that I'm a dork to my neighbor, and I need to fix that. I was reading my Bible, and I found that Jesus allowed a prostitute to touch his feet. And there's people that I don't want to have anything to do with. But if God in the flesh could let somebody like that touch him, be near him, be around him, I feel convicted. I need to change that. You know, the scriptures will speak to you. But you must avail yourself to hear. Take it up and read. Know that this is God's final revelation to you. He will speak to you through it. He will correct you. He will rebuke you. He will train you for godliness and righteousness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift the scriptures are. And the more I read, the more I study, the more I realize 
the less I know. The less I the less I look like Christ. I know that's your goal for each one of us who claim to follow Jesus. You want to make us look like him. You want us to love and speak truth and handle ourselves as if Jesus was living our life. And so I pray, Father, that as we read your words, that you would convince us that they are final, that they are complete, and they are not obsolete, and that they are good for us, will train us in godliness and righteousness. Holy Spirit, help us to take up and read. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you crave God's word. May you Follow God's word. May it become part of who you are. Amen.